614 and your tweet at Aldrin Simpia. And you can also drop us a call on 086-000-2032. Remember that we are joined by the Electricity Minister um, just after 5 o'clock following that press briefing that he had a bit early on about the state of um, our electricity supply. Um, and in the next few minutes, we'll be in conversation with uh, Tirana Hassan, who's the newly appointed Executive Director of Human Rights Watch. We understand that, that Tirana is now on the line. Tirana Hassan began her career as a social worker. Her commitment to justice and human rights is drawn from lived experience as someone who spent many years working with women, children in conflict and crisis situations. She joins us now to outline her priorities. This as we understand that one of her key priorities will be to call out government selective applications of human rights obligations. Tirana now joining us on the line. Good afternoon and thank you so much for joining us and congratulations. Thank you very much. What does this appointment mean for you? Um, well, it's uh, it's incredibly exciting and it's a real privilege uh, to be able to, you know, come work with the dedicated colleagues uh, around the world in in Human Rights Watch. You know, we have a 30 year, we have over a 30 year history of investigating and defending human rights around the world. So I, I feel the weight of the responsibility, but I also feel incredibly excited um, about, you know, what we can do uh, by partnering with um, human rights defenders around the world and being able to continue to speak truth to power, mm. being able to, in a world where facts are up for dispute, to be able to keep on putting the evidence out there and mobilising governments to do the right thing. And it's it's such a huge task as well, because on the other end is where you find civil rights organizations and organizations, organizations um, that are proponents for human rights, like yourself, Human Rights Watch, is that some people would then say that, but the Human Rights Watch is emphasizing, for instance, right now, more on the Ukraine-Russia war instead of what's happening in the DRC, which has been going on for longer than what's currently happening in Ukraine. I think that, you know, there's been a lot of discussion around the world that um, Ukraine has dominated the international headlines. For Human Rights Watch, we have staff based around in 100 countries all mm. over the world who are, you know, whilst we do have teams in Ukraine, we're also putting out uh, constant research on, like just this week, it's been on Thailand, um, on the United Arab Emirates. We're looking at the impacts of the climate crisis around the world um, from countries from Tajikistan through to Burkina Faso. So, you know, I, I share the, the concern that um, a lot of the forgotten crises, including what is happening in the Democratic Republic of Congo, um, is not getting the attention it is. And it's our commitment to continue uh, to keep the situations that have fallen off the headlines on the international agenda, whether that be Yemen uh, or whether that be DRC. And then, of course, the other issue is around um, how you make sure that when you deal with these investigations of human rights violations, that uh, Human Rights Watch doesn't buckle under the pressure of the government or the day of the day, or even sometimes even some of the funders of Human Rights Watch. 
Yeah, we are certainly not in the business of um, buckling under pressure or we probably wouldn't have lasted this long. But, you know, we our job as Human Rights Watch is to investigate abuses no matter where they happen and no matter who is responsible and call them out. Um, it's really to establish the independent narrative. And sometimes, indeed, that is not uh, popular. Um, but we don't take any funding from governments um, and we are not, uh, we don't take funding to do certain projects by individual donors. So, you know, we take our independence incredibly seriously um, and our job is really to, pre to present the evidence as it is and ensure that there's accountability. The people who we are accountable to, the people at the center of all the work that Human Rights Watch does are the people who are the victims, the survivors and the communities that we work with and for. How then do we also get to a level where um, people don't get almost, um, it's almost like they feel that they have run out of compassion uh, towards, for instance, another crisis that has been going on for years now is uh, the Israeli-Palestinian crisis. And uh, your appointment now comes also with the Al-Aqsa uh, mosque um, uh, um, invasion by Israeli securities. How do you approach mm -hmm. that and make sure that you still highlight the plight of Palestinians while at the same time also holding the Israeli government accountable, but also ensuring that the concerns that they are raising is also being highlighted. Absolutely. I, you know, that's what we do is that we actually document um, the abuses that are happening. And Israel-Palestine has been a real priority um, for Human Rights Watch, you know, along with the other, <clears throat> many other countries around the world. But it's, I don't think that we can operate in a framing of, you know, we're tired of it. There's no, there is no, space for fatigue when people's lives are still being impacted by human rights abuses and where governments are continuing to uh, violate their international obligations at the expense of um of, of people and you know when it comes to israel palestine we have been very critical of the recent um criticisms of the uh, sorry the recent developments in israel domestically of the attacks on the judiciary which are a massive threat to the rights of israeli people but we've also worked consistently on documenting you know what human rights watch has found to be you know, uh, a systematic uh, human rights abuses by the israeli authorities against palestinians which we found to rise to the level of the crime of apartheid and you know our job is to raise these issues present the evidence and work with the international community to hold gov governments to account and in this instance actually the south african government has been uh, an incredible ally and a champion for uh, on the crime of apartheid, ensuring that it's kept on the international stage and that um, this conversation continues. And then at multinational bodies, like for instance, the United Nations and a concern that has been raised by Africa um, year in, year out when the United Nations General Assembly sits, is the permanent representation of Africa, considering that uh, most of the deployments um, by members of the United Nations um, are deployments mm -hmm. that are being done in, 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 in Africa. And even if you look at, at um, the Human Rights Watch's own 
um, finances and expenses, uh, the majority of that is being spent in Africa. So the representation of Africa on international bodies, especially like the United Nations Security Council. Right. I mean, the I mean, there is obviously a great a lot to say on um, how the Security Council works, and you know, I think that. The issue of Security Council reform is not one that is just about representation, but it's actually one that we need to be talking about in relation to how the veto power mm. at the Security Council is being used and abused. And it's really shown in the last, you know, in the last decade, how the veto power has actually paralyzed the Security Council from actually taking the sort of action that's required, whether that be in Myanmar or whether that be in the war in Ukraine or elsewhere. Um, so it's not just about representation. I think that the conversation around Security Council reform is one that is not only um, timely, but it's actually urgent. Mm -hmm. So with that veto power concern, what should happen there? I mean, this the problem that we have when it comes to the veto is that it is being abused by governments like China and Russia who are trying to protect its their friends and their allies. And that was most obvious, you know, whether it be on the human mm. rights situation in Xinjiang, where a million Uyghurs have been detained in re-education camps by the Chinese authorities, or whether it be protecting allies of Russia. Now, that the war in Syria is a very good example of how the Security Council was essentially paralyzed because Russia was protecting Syria. So, you know, whether or not, I think the big question is, is whether there is the political will um, to be mm. able to actually move the Security Council from actually reassessing yeah. uh, the veto power. Yeah, but also the US has also been accused of abusing that veto <clears throat> power, especially when it comes to Israel. Israel, absolutely. That's very true. There's no, I mean, let's be very clear that there's nobody with particularly clean hands when it comes to the veto power. And I think that we should be holding every government, whether it be the US or Russia, um, to exactly the same standard. Yeah. A final one is on um, climate change. And we know, of course, of the just energy transition, for instance, the one that South Africa has now signed as well. And how do we approach this conversation? Because it's almost like there is this to and fro and the balancing act that is required that a country that is uh, well endowed with um, fossil fuel on the other end, though, you have the concerns around climate change as well as the emissions. And you're at the same time trying to grow the economy because the um, because, uh, well, at least nearly half of your people in the case of South Africa are unemployed. I mean, <clears throat> you know, there, I think when we're talking about transitions to energy, it's something that to green energy um, and reducing emissions. It's something that's going to take an investment and a commitment from, from governments around the world. Um, but we have to remember that this isn't really a, a choice anymore. Um, it's around governments making the investment and the commitment to actually make the green transition. But And really the motivator behind this is not just about our own survival and the survival of the planet. We need to remember what is happening to the communities around these mining sites. I mean, Human Rights Watch did a report just a few years ago uh, about the damage and the pollution that's been done from uh, abandoned coal mine sites for the communities in those areas. And the the impact that this has 
on communities if we continue to go down this path of just uh, blindly going into continuing uh, our reliance on fossil fuels isn't just damaging the environment, it's really impacting the communities around them who are feeling the impacts of the pollution, the waste, and even when mines have been completed, uh, not safely closed. Thank you so much for your time and all the best in your new job as well as the ventures of the Human Rights Watch. Thank you so much for your time. Tirana Hassan is the newly appointed Executive Director of Human Rights Watch. 0614-104-107. You can also drop me a tweet on Aldrin's at Aldrin St. Pierre and our studio line is 86 2032